Hello and welcome to Crossing Borders with Nathan Lustig, where I interview entrepreneurs doing startups across borders and the investors who support them, with a focus on companies that have some relationship to Latin America. My guest today is Devin Baptiste, co-founder and CEO of Group Race, a company with more than 50 employees in three offices in Houston, Texas, Santiago, Chile, and the Philippines. Group Raise is a platform that allows groups of 15 to 50 people to book events in more than 6,000 restaurants across the United States. These restaurants then donate 10 to 20% of their bill to the organization or charity of the group's choice. As Devin puts it, it's the tastiest way to change the world. Not to mention the most cost-effective customer acquisition strategy a restaurant can have. Devin and I talk about his journey that took him from Houston, Texas to Taiwan, Korea, Hawaii, Chile, Germany, and back to Houston again. How he thinks about scaling businesses from Latin America to the U.S., how he raised his recent fundraising round from Techstars Ventures, Kapoor Capital, and Magma Partners, and how he looks at being a minority founder, running an international business while also married and also having two young kids. Devin is one of the most interesting people I've met in the past few years, and I feel lucky to be able to work closely with him on his journey to building a world-class business. We have a few sound issues, as Devin was in a Target in a thunderstorm, and then in his car when we recorded our conversation. But please don't let my recording issues get in the way of learning everything you can from Devin. So let's jump right in. Hi, Devin. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being willing to come on. Yeah, happy to join. Awesome. So, yeah, I wanted to just jump right in. Uh, where, where are you in the world today? I'm currently in Pearland, Texas, walking around a Target with my wife, which means <laughs> my wife is very, very happy. And that's, that's in suburban Houston, right? Yeah, that's just out of uh, the suburb, just outside of Houston, Texas. Um, and uh, yeah, we're walking, looking at pans, and she's really super excited about that. And why why are you in Texas? Why are you in Houston? Uh, well, I grew up in Houston. Was the is the first kind of bet, but but the uh, the long term answer is that there are more restaurants per capita uh, than anywhere else in the country in Houston. So it's a pretty awesome place to start a restaurant startup. In retrospect, like I've like fell in love with food. Like people think that there are a lot of really good food cities, but Houston is like it's an obscene place for food. Um, so, and so uh, let's, yeah, let's yeah. jump right into why. Why is that interesting? For why are you picking the most restaurants per capita as a place to start a business? What are you What are you working on? Yeah, so founder of Group Race. Um, uh, so Group Race. You know, I like to think of Groupers as the most delicious way to change the world. Uh, but what we're doing is we're helping restaurants fill their slow and undercapitalized times with groups on average of 55 customers in exchange for donating a percentage of the sales back to a charitable cause. So um, a mom, a sorority girl, a cancer survivor, or someone like that comes to our site. They book a date with one of our restaurant partners. Um, they invite all their friends and social connections out to eat with them, have a really, really fun social meal, and at the end of the night, the restaurant donates a percentage of the sales back to their charitable cause. Super simple, super delicious. And uh, we, uh, yeah, we started here in Houston um, because it's an amazing place for food and people getting around it. And uh, we thought there were a lot of other places that looked like that. And flash forward, we're now in just over 150 cities. Uh, and turns out there are. 
And so I've I've not actually only been to Houston in the airport before. And what's so what's the startup scene? I mean, people know about Austin and Texas. What's it like in Houston for tech? Well, it's a good question. Um, it is evolving. Um, so when we originally started Group Raise, the, probably the center of gravity in Houston for the tech scene was Rice. University of Rice has um, a business buying competition that gives away a million dollars each year. Wow. So it's a, it's a pretty big draw. I won a business um, plan competition. I got $1,000. <laughs> What's up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it gives away, yeah. A total of a million, I think the like top prize gets maybe like half a million, and then they break down the rest among the prizes. So um, when I was in college, I was running kind of a bunch of small companies, but then like kind of regional companies, but then I got exposed um, to, to a different form of entrepreneurship by watching people win a million dollars a couple times <laughs> and that uh, planted a seed. Yeah, that, that should do it. So... You're in Houston now, and you have offices two other places in the world. Where where are those? Yeah, so we have an office here in Houston, and we have an office in Santiago, Chile, um, and we have a office slash team in the Philippines. That's really interesting. And so, why why did you get to Chile? What made you decide to do a Latin America, or even just Chile specifically? Well, um, I could say up front that I had no, like, there was no master plan on my side as to why Chile. We kind of really stumbled into it. My, um, my wife and I were living in Hawaii at the time, um, and I was actually running group raise from Hawaii while my wife was in grad school, and she ran into uh, a friend of hers from, like, growing up just on the street in Oahu in Honolulu, like on a random street. And she was there with her um, Chilean boyfriend and she worked for Endeavor and she said that like, she, she like essentially sold me the Chile dream. And I was in, she talked to me about South Chile and I'd never really, I was like, I don't know if I want to do it. And then she kind of convinced me that we needed to apply. And so at the time my wife was pregnant and uh, the application deadline was on the day that my son was born, so we were literally editing the startup Chile app on the hospital bed <laughs> before my son was born. Um, we, uh, my wife, helped me edit it, so she's like in labor on this bed. That's how awesome she is, helping me do this. And uh, we submitted it, and we proceeded to forget about uh, about it because we had a son. Um, and then I was taking him back to Houston to meet his grandparents, and on the flight back to Hawaii. I got the uh, congratulations, you're headed to Chile, you know, and that kind of sparked the seed, and we went down for Southern Chile, and and when I got to Chile, I just saw a lot of opportunity, and I saw a lot of talent. But, uh, you just glossed over, I think, a pretty major point for, uh, for I would say, most people uh, in the world would probably say, oh, you know, I applied for Startup Chile before I had a kid, and now I have a kid. I'm probably just going to, you know... Take, take it easy for a little bit and raise my kid rather than jumping down to a South American country I've never been to. What made you decide to, to pull the trigger? And you made it sound like it was just a no-brainer. Yeah, we're doing it. Um, well, I, I think, I think um, it's a good question. I think the, the answer is probably that I'm a little crazy and my wife is a little awesome, right? 
So, so we, we, once we got in, I think, I think it was one of those things where I was like, if we get in, you know, it's like something I had never, like I hadn't factored, but if we get in, it'll be a moving piece. We just thought it'd be a cool opportunity. And, and, uh, it really, all the credit actually goes to my wife when I was like, Oh, we have this three month old, like, how about we move to South America, a place you've never been with, you know, definitely never raised a child there. Never, you know, have you know, have pretty much no, no net there, like no community. Um, and she was like, "Okay, let's do that." So that's awesome. Um, and you, you have you have um, a bit of a track record of traveling interesting places and 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 uh, setting up shop for a while. Where where else have you gone? Because I mean, it makes a little more sense that you'd be willing to pull the trigger to Latin America right away with a newborn and a family um, with a bit of your sort of history of, of going places. Where, where other places have you been and and for a longer period of time? Yeah, so, I mean, my life really comes in two phases, um, uh, like, when it comes to travel. So, in college, I went to Taiwan, um, and in Taiwan is actually where I met my wife. Uh, my wife is a tall redhead from Boston. Um, I'm a you know, medium to large size black dude. Uh, we kind of stand out on the streets there. Uh, I saw her on a bus, uh, and I like proceeded to make fun of her because she was speaking Chinese and I understood enough Chinese to know that she was talking about drinking beer. And I was like, she thinks she's so cool. Um, yeah. And, uh, I made the, I like just like made fun of her with actually who was just my roommate at the time, but now my co-founder, um, Sean on the back of this bus in Taiwan. Um, and a couple of weeks later I ended up meeting her. I was looking for a church to go to, um, in Taiwan. And, uh, I like somehow missed, like I was going to church in Chinese and, um, I, wanted to go to church in English because I like wasn't understanding anything. I was like, that would be nice. So I got on a bus. I like kind of plotted my path. I knew what church I was going to go to, but I just sat on the bus and I completely forgot to get off. Um, and when, um, when I realized that I was like two hours away, something ridiculous like that, it like took me like two and a half hours to get back to the part of the city I wanted to go to and cost me like all my money at the time. Um, and in this church, I've been in Asia for a while and I really, really, really wanted some bread. And so there was this like bagel place, um, and this part of the city called Dongguan in Taipei. And I was like, I'll just go get a bagel. I go to church at night. It'll be all cool. Um, but I needed, I'm in a target. Um, <laughs> it's all right. Keep it going. <laughs> yeah. It adds to the ambience. <laughs> yeah. I told you that. Um, and, and so I was like, yeah, so I need to go to the ATM to get cash so I can buy a bagel. The first ATM I go to is all out of cash and I go to another ATM and it's all out of cash. In total, I go to five ATMs and none of them have cash. And it's like, I'm super hungry. I don't have money to go home. I don't have like money to get food. So I'm like, okay, God, what am I going to do? So I like keep looking for churches. And the next church I walk into, I ask, you know, do you have English services? And they say yes. And I say when? And they say now. And so like, I'm like, great. So I remember there was this like stairway up to the second floor. 
and I walk into the church, and there in the front row is the redhead from the bus, and I'm like, wow, she goes here. Um, and so I kind of sat in the back, and and um, in the, the, the service ends, and someone introduced us, and she's like, hey, I'm going to choir practice, do you want to come? And I was like, sure, why not? So like, I'm like singing with the redhead from the bus, and that, that ends, and I can tell everyone's going to go to get food, but I don't have any money. So she, she's like, hey, you should come eat with us. And I'm like, no, 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 no worries, no worries, no worries. And she's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. They paid for you the first time. And I was like, okay. So I go, and we're, like, eating, and I'm, like, having having lunch with this girl who I, like, shamelessly made fun of back of this bus. And it's a pretty surreal moment. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you are sitting and the meal's kind of coming to an end, and you realize that no one is going to pay for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, oh crap! Like, you know, it's gonna pay for me. Like, I don't have any money, and so she, um, she kind of saw the situation and agreed to lend me the money for the meal in exchange that I would come back again. Um, <laughs> and so that that transaction happened. I think she like loaned me the equivalent of three three U.S. dollars, um, and the rest is history. And so I always say like. Like, I could have had a bagel, but instead I got a wife. Uh, it was a really great deal. <laughs> that's, um, that's, that's an amazing story. Uh, really amazing. Yeah, so that was, like, Taiwan. And then, like, our second date was, like, I took her on a date to Korea. So she, I <laughs> think she kind of knew. Yeah, I was like, you want to go to Korea with me? And she was like, sure. And uh, if we look at the kind of history of our relationship, that's, been pretty much the speed the whole time so uh-huh. i don't necessarily know if she wasn't warned but she is awesome for being uh doing all the world travel so we uh we went to korea after that and then and then uh came back and we lived in korea we lived in in these like two small towns um one i lived in a place called boryong which is a seaside city and she lived in a place called Hongsong. Both of these are in a region called Chongsong Nando, where the people are known for speaking slow. Um, and did you pick that on purpose? Uh, no, actually. So we kind of got we got we got like well, we picked the same region on purpose, and so um, it worked out in a way where I had an apartment in the city that was about twenty minutes away from her city, and she had an apartment, and we just kind of left the whole world, and we just dated we dated in the rural countryside of Korea, like visiting each other back and forth, um, kind of experiencing what that was like. And actually the original group race colors are the exact same colors of my city in Boryong. It's really? like, when I like look back, I realized like I got a lot of like design inspiration from that city in Korea. And had, did you already have the group race idea back when you were in Korea or, um, were you still sort of thinking about other stuff? You know, I had I definitely had the idea when I was in Korea. So Korea was this cool opportunity where it's like, what's going to, you know, went off with Jess, we were dating, and I, like, had an apartment that was fully paid for, and we made, I forget how much we made. We made, like, some money on top and allowed me to, like, save money and then kind of do some, like, original prototyping of group race, like, because I was only working 15 hours a week. Um, so definitely the idea was was rolling in terms of uh, some kind of prototyping and thinking about what, what we wanted to do. And how did, it, how did it work with the language skills, both when you were in Taiwan and then also in, in Korea? 
how how much did you learn? How fast did you learn? Uh, did you learn it all? Yeah. So, um, well, like one of the greatest shocks of my life is that at home, my wife and I and our kids, we speak Chinese um, today. And yeah, the first time the first time that I saw that happen, I was like, "Wow, that's really impressive." I barely speak English and Spanish, and you guys are going off in speaking Chinese in in your house. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah, it's, it's it's like a great shock, and it was a great shock to my family, right? So, like when I came back from Taiwan, um, so my dad is like a is a great character in my life, and he's like just a general kind of character. You could definitely write a book about about him. Um, he didn't like. He just didn't believe that I spoke Chinese, right? He thought like it was kind of like a cute parlor trick. Um, and until like, so his, his original verification system was my dad worked selling appliances at a store in Houston called Cogs and he would have customers come in who were generally of Asian background, right? So he, he didn't know if they were Chinese or not, but anyone he suspected spoke Chinese, <laughs> he would, uh, call me on the phone and say, speak Chinese to them. Right. So just like out of random, like I'd get a phone call from my dad and he'd be like, there's someone here who speaks Chinese, like talk to them. And so I would have this, like, I'd have these like 20 minute long conversations with his customers, like him standing in the store, like, and like after a couple of these, he's like, wow, you actually speak Chinese. And, and then he started to use that as like a sales tactic, um, and closed a bunch of like crazy deals. And funny thing about that was is that some of those customers actually even came to my wife and I, like our wedding and gave wow. me like one of them gave us $500, right? Like, wow. Like, um, but, but that's like mainly because my dad is like a, an interesting navigator of people. But, um, but yeah, so, so super shocked. Um, I was like, yeah, I, I didn't think language was my thing before. And then I don't know, through the grace of God, Chinese happened. Um, and then Korean, Korean falls in my like starter pack method. So I have like starter pack Korean, which essentially means I can, you know, eat because that's super important. I can take taxis. I can have, I can have, like I can make cultural jokes and, you know, kind of like I can get there. I can fully live in Korea without any sort of assistance or help, um, with a certain shallowness to the interpersonal relationships in Korean, um, and I have the same for German, uh, and I would say my Spanish is, has gotten just probably beyond that, but uh, but but similar. But Chinese is Chinese is like a, like me and my wife probably feel more comfortable talking in Chinese in many cases than English. Really? How yeah. come? Uh, just because we did most of our relationship in Chinese. So we met in Taiwan at a time when I was learning, and she was definitely ahead of me as a learner. And and then we did long distance for a bit. And we just, when we were long distance, we pretty much exclusively, like 100% spoken Chinese. And so when we came back, because I had roommates and she had roommates, and we're both fairly private people, I think, when it comes to emotions. Um, and so when we came together, we just never stopped. So most of our, like, kind of, affectionate language and kind of the way we relate as a couple has happened in Chinese. So if I'm very, feeling very emotional or feeling very like, you know, connected, um, that tends to be language that I feel most comfortable to use now in Chinese. Really? That's super interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. And you just dropped German in there. How did, how did that happen? Uh, yeah. So, 
pretty much every time we have a kid, something amazing happens. So the day, the day my daughter was born is when we found out that we got into Techstars. Um, literally the morning, the, the morning that, uh, we were headed to the hospital, I got a call from, from, uh, I got an email from Rob Johnson, uh, who was a Techstars MD, who said he wanted to hop on the phone and he, uh, he told us that uh, we got accepted into Techstars, uh, Techstars program in Berlin. And so very similarly, when my daughter was six weeks old, uh, my wife graciously allowed us to move to Berlin uh, to do that Techstars program. And in Berlin, we, uh, which is a city that I love, 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 love Berlin so much. Um, it's like this, it's like an onion of, of history plus just awesome Night life experience, amazing tech scene, like definitely a place I would consider living long term. Um, but yeah, there we, uh, you know, definitely kind of engaged the starter pack tournament um, and uh, and you know, fell in love with that city as well. And do you have any? Do you have any tricks that you use to get to your starter pack level fast? Yeah, so starter pack, now I pretty much have the, I, I don't know if I would exactly say, it's probably a hundred words, I don't know, that, that that's not the exact count, but I, I have like a hundred kind of word or phrases that I want to learn in every language that I'm trying to interact with, and um, I built it out as as like, you know, what is, like how am I going to be able to successfully interact in restaurants and taxis, that's probably the first and fastest, um, and then I typically try to look for something. So, like in Chinese, there's something called chengyi, which is like uh, idioms. Essentially, it's a similar concept. Mm-hmm. Where if you know just a couple of chengyi, the amount of impression of your language is just extremely high. But the amount, of, the ability to learn them is pretty easy. So, if you can get, if I can get like three to five kind of idioms that that are common life occurrences, it builds rapport really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, and then taxis are like, taxis are where they've been my best language classes. Like I'll just like get in taxis to go everywhere in foreign countries so that I can, so that I can talk about politics or I can talk about sports or talk about like common events, um, and really like build the chops. I did that for Chinese, I did that for German, I did that for Spanish, um, a lot of taxi rides. The taxi method of learning. Uh, I, I did the same when I was first in Chile. That was my my best my best classes for the first six months. Beyond you know drinking drinking beer with a friend of mine, but other than that, yeah, it was all taxis. And because you know, there's no if you feel any sort of shame in learning learning a new language and trying, which you know I think a lot of people do. Taxi ride is the perfect one because. It's over in five to twenty minutes, and you'll never see the person again. So it doesn't matter That's how right. much of a fool you look like, which is kind of a freeing experience, right? You kind of get in that situation where even if it goes like super horrible, it's fine. You know, just like yeah. it's it's as close to a reset reality as you can get in the language speaking world. Yeah. Well, let's let's jump back to Chile. So we went through. Um, you just have a newborn son. You get into Startup Chile and you decide to come down to Chile. Did you have any sort of expectations? Did you know anything about Chile before you went? Uh, nothing. I mean, I, well, I mean, 
so in Spanish class, I sang this song that essentially made me learn all the capitals of the Spanish-speaking world. So I knew the capital of Chile. I obviously knew it was like a long, skidding country. Um, and I think I think my wife had had a friend who had studied, a, like the friend who I met and had studied abroad there. But, but in general, personally, I had literally no expectations. And so what, what year was this and what... Um what round of startup Chile was this in? So this was Generation Nine, um, and then our kind of time it was like broken up into two two batches. So we were like nine Generation Nine One, um, and in terms of the year was this 2014? Yeah, I think this is this is 2014 we're talking about. I'm like I'm like pretty time just kind of swirls around me. So yeah, yes, you would have been you would have been. Early 2014, I was in the pilot round in late 2010. So you were generation nine. I think there were two or three generations per year. So that 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 makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and so you you when you were first going down there, how many people were in the company? Uh, four total. The four the four co-founders. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And how many yeah, I mean, how many came down to Chile? Um, so the so I went down first, um, and then Paul, my CTO, came down, um, and then uh, Sean came, and so it was the three of us there for a while. Um, and Kevin was still in Houston, kind of running ops in Houston, and then um, Paul went back, and then pretty much for the majority of the time after that, it was me and Sean in Chile. So what what made you after the six month program decide that you wanted to stay and keep and keep building operations there rather than like many companies would jump back to Houston? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. So uh, we were at um, I think actually a group race mail that we had organized in Chile. And um, there was, like, all the people from Southern Chile were there. And we were at this dinner. We were sitting outside, and it's this place in Bay Vista. Um, I forget the name at the moment, but it has, like, a little courtyard on the inside. And I was talking, and uh, one, of the, one of the staff members uh, said to me, said, hey, Dev, like, how much money would it take to keep you in Chile? And uh, I was like, ah, maybe an additional, like, 180000 you know, it was like equity free, like that's probably be enough. And he then responded, Would one twenty do? And it was like <laughs> such a specific number. I was like, wait a second, am I in a negotiation? Like 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 is this like a thing? Like is this is this something that that's desired and uh and um and that was a thread that kind of planted this like seed and then I was like I pulled on it and I was like, Hey, I went to the executive director at the time, Justin Vidal, and was like, hey, if you really, you know, you want to keep us here, like, let's do a deal. And so uh, we, along with um, uh, Teleport Me, which is uh, another company that was in Batch 9, run by an awesome entrepreneur named Vinit, uh, initiated the negotiation process for scale with uh, Sebastian Vidal. And so I always say that I was like the dummy entrepreneur who negotiated the scale contract. Uh, so, uh, yeah, which and was so, a super interesting experience. And what did what just for people who don't know, what is scale? 
Uh, so Scale is a follow-on fund that's for a select set of companies that come through Chile, uh, that go to the start of Chile to keep them in the country and kind of establish a Chilean company and uh, continue to think about, you know, to establish a Chilean office. Um, and so we were after a, I would say, fairly intense negotiation process that lasted spanned over about six, six months, and then we really found out in the end, um, about nine months later, um, that we got through the process. Uh, we, uh, yeah, came to a deal on structure where uh, the first investment out of the startup Chile fund. Um, so it was a super interesting experience. Yeah, so, so you guys were in Generation 9. You did your six months. You got $40,000. $40, and then during that, during that time, you started the negotiations for scale, uh, inventing scale along with the Startup Chile team. And you ended up with another 120 k on top. Yeah, yeah. So another additional 60 million Chilean pesos. I like to talk in million pesos because millions of anything is cool. Exactly. I know. When you look at your bank balance and it says you have a million or two million in there, you're like, oh, yeah, this is, this is really nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember when I got the, the 30 million wire coming through, I was like, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll get another 30 million wire like in the next like, couple of years, but it was still fun to get 30 million of anything wired to you. Exactly. Exactly. So do you think he would have stayed if... Um, you wouldn't have gotten that other, the next round of money, or do you think you would have headed back to the States or somewhere else? You know, so for me, I actually got super passionate about Chile in the process. So I think one of the reasons why there was kind of a mutual interest in staying around was, um, like, the program itself, like, I got enamored with the concepts of, of bringing people from all over the world who had entrepreneurial background and making a hub uh, and kind of like driving density in that place and kind of model of teaching entrepreneurs, teaching other entrepreneurs that they know, and then kind of continuing to engage the broader community. Uh, so I was helping them kind of build a program around like how to consistently create world-class entrepreneurs from start of Chile. And so we had spent a lot of time with, at the time, Luke Ball and a couple of the folks from the program who we were thinking about that and and um, and so was really just excited about continuing to help the mission of creating world class entrepreneurs that come to Chile and so the it was like in addition to running the company it became this kind of um, place to really clearly direct passion um, in addition to like a great way to get back and so uh, I think it made the question just a no brainer um, uh, but. I think even before that, we were kind of considering how to like, like maintain a relationship, and you know, it's like if there's another way to to do that to make it make sense, it'd be great. And so, before we really had to think about it in a vacuum, the opportunity pretty much started to roll. Um, and I remember I was with my wife, and we were in our apartment, and we had a a uh, mango champagne and a. Uh, Chitty Moya flavored champagne, and we were like, you know, if we do this, you know, we'll, we'll, if we get in, we'll stay in Chile and we'll drink the Chitty Moya champagne. And if we're going back to Hawaii, like, you can't complain against that. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll drink the mango champagne. And then we found out that it was really going to be a combination of both. So we just drank 
both bottles of champagne. <laughs> That's so. always a good policy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, my 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 uh, kind of story was similar. Where um, I didn't get scale didn't exist when when I was there, but I went back to the states then decided that I wanted to learn the rest of Spanish and also um, see what kind of opportunities were there. Because, I mean, I think especially Chileans don't realize how innovative Startup Chile is. Um, you know, I think people outside of, the, outside of Chile maybe start to realize um, kind of how cool it is. But the fact that Chile, especially right now when many countries around the world are starting to make it harder and harder for smart people or really any people to get into the country. Chile has a policy where you know, anyone who wants to work and can get a job or wants to start a business can come in and, and get going. And so when I was first, first coming back, I thought it was really interesting as more and more people started to come from all over the world and more and more started to stay. So I had sort of a similar, similar reaction to you. It was like, wow, this is this is pretty cool. This is something that you can build on, and something that uh, is building momentum, and not just in Chile, but across across the region. I think it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I felt like to, to act like that that it was just super historic. Okay, yeah, I was thinking about you know what are some really big opportunities for like our generation. And I think I thought the migration to Chile was is like definitely something that will be marked as a historic moment um, in time that will change the demographics of the country, will change the demographics of Latin America. And so I remember it was like told to me by Nicochet actually the like historical example of how Chile colonialized South um, the southern part of Chile, which was they like painted these really beautiful pictures of of uh, the south because it's like very breathtaking, and sent them to Germany and said, "Hey, we'll give you some land, a pig, and a cow if you come if you come um, and live here." You know, and like it was viewed as one of the most successful ways to like actually gain control of that land, and you know, he was kind of positioning sort of Chile as the modern version of like we need to figure out what what happens post copper. We need to diversify and we've solved these problems in the past with uh migration. So um so it was just it felt like a very like, fresh vision. It felt like very historic to be a part of that movement and then to be able to contribute to it. I just thought it was like this and I still think it's just this amazing opportunity. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is it's it's happening probably the fastest in Chile, but there's definitely a trend happening across um, Latin America in places like Argentina and Colombia and Mexico and um, parts of Brazil where foreign entrepreneurs are coming there and foreign tech workers are coming there and, and either working for established companies or uh, doing remote work. And I just think it's it's really interesting, kind of an underreported story in uh, of what's going on in the world today. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought of it originally as like a, you know, we kind of had, it was one of the first times where we truly experienced what a global recession would look like in the end of, in, in, in 2008. And kind of recessions are, you know, typically like characterized with the a surgence of entrepreneurship. And so... 
it was like one of the first times in like 2010 really where the world as a whole was kind of like bending hard towards entrepreneurship and then that wave has kind of been crashing since um across the world right and so and so there were lots of places that now historically that hadn't been tech hubs and entrepreneurs who had historically like seen that where technology you know the cost of what it takes to start a company and that kind of technology and the interest was more geographically spread and so I think I think I like think that it was just a a wave created actually by the original recession that like has still kind of surged through. So let's let's dig in a little more on on Chile. So you got the money for startup Chile. You did scale. Um, when you were in the program, did you launch group raise in Chile as well as the states? Did you do Chile first? How did you think about that? Yeah, so we we were in the states, right? I think our original vision and our, our current vision was that you know the kind of business can be worked on in a pretty much geography agnostic manner, but then the main market is the U.S. Um, while we were in Chile itself, we did. I'm a big believer in kind of the group raise experience. So we did a series of group raise meals. It's kind of an opportunity to give like the state of Chile and and the market and like people we hired in Chile a chance to experience like what like the experience that we're driving is. But our general strategy um, was to continue to focus on the U.S. as a market um, with kind of like with kind of our eye on how we how we globally expand. But um, but 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 the core the core markets around were were in the U.S. And what kind of similarities and what kind of differences did you see in trying to make sales in the Chilean market versus the U.S. market? Well, the funny thing was is actually that the Chilean market was super receptive. I mean, the deal closed actually even faster. The only challenge, the only challenge was that. Um, well, I think kind of the interesting thing was is that people people kind of thought that in Chile there would be hesitance to support charity in the same kind of way in the U.S. culture. But the thing I've found with group raise, because we've run group raise now from Germany, from Chile, from, you know, like, those are in Korea and a bunch of different places in the world, is that it's, like, almost so American that people want to do it as a novelty act. And uh-huh. because you're going out to eat, um, it's, like, the lowest way to get someone to be involved charitably like you're going to eat anyway, a lot of people are just really curious to experience what it's like to be involved in like a community activity. Um, so we actually had really great reception in Chile. We just thought that in terms of the focus that, that, uh, that the U.S. kind of and driving density in the markets we were in uh, was, was more important. But, but we still, and even now, I think we'll, we'll continue to do a couple of events in Chile, um, um, which was a big... Uh, just to make sure that we're like always going through the experience, but that was not something we expected. Actually, our expectation was that people wouldn't get it, or that they like, or they'd be confused, or the terrible angle would kind of like somehow miss. Um, but we actually found, at least at that level of engagement, like the opposite was true. We got to organize a a little group raise for all of the uh, the magma companies and uh, employees when when you're in Chile in in May. We should do that. Yeah, I think it would be awesome. I, I mean, it's like one of those things where we've got a bunch of new employees there. 
I think it's just amazing to to connect with people over the dinner table and just like talk about life's experience, and then at the same time, you get to support a cause that you care about. And I think I think the kind of like experience, you know. So my belief is that the, the dinner table was the original social network, right? Like that that and that anything you can do to make that more effective is a very like human powerful way to change the world. So yeah, definitely want to do that. Yeah, we should do it. I'm going to jump back to the the focus on on Latin America and the states because you know a lot of the other companies in our in our portfolio have either tried to test their product in Chile with a few different clients or even to the point of saying Chile or Latin America is our is our market and then have decided no, you know what? After we've tested this, we're just going to the states and we're not going to do any operations in in Latin America. Um, can you talk about your your a little more about your decision to make the U.S. the focus market um, beyond beyond just that? There's more density. What kind of uh, what kind of other advantages are there in the U.S. market compared to trying to go into the Latin American market? I think mean, a lot of it is just like credit cards, right? Like yeah. like it's pretty ubiquitous uh, that people will buy things on the interwebs in the United States. Like in, you know, in hundreds of billions, and I'm sure there's like trillion dollars in credit card spend. Um, and like the restaurant industry that we work in tends to be a laggard industry in pretty much all ways. So, we, uh, and, and that like it tends to be the case globally. So, the U, and the US is laggard around other industries, but still way far ahead in terms of advanced uh, restaurant technology adoption versus. Um, Latin America. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, it's kind of like when you're talking to someone and they say, oh, you need a computer for this, you're like, that's like not a good sign um, in terms of finding scale. I think uh, I think one of the other aspects of it is that, that for us, that when we looked at, you know, it's, it's kind of like market structures. We're looking for supply and demand and kind of the intersection of, of like how that friction rolls. And you know, it became, it just was really clear that the lowest hanging fruit was around targeting U.S. cities. Um, but the, like, I think in terms of the business itself, that made a lot of sense to us to really get, to really keep that growing. But we saw huge talent opportunities, like huge, on like the input side. And that's where we saw Latin America was like unbeatable, right? Like where there was, there's just all this talent that's not being structured. Um, and we saw this opportunity to go up to the U.S. market, but then structure talent in Chile. How many people are in your Chile office now? Oh man, uh, that's a good question. I think it's a, I think we're at seven now, um, mm -hmm. and and uh, making new hires. So it's uh, we're at this kind of expansion phase. So to, to, to headcount is almost challenging at the moment to, to keep track of. And so, what what kind of roles do those seven people and the people that you'd like to hire? What do they do in Chile? Yeah, so our company is split up into a couple of areas, right? So we have marketing um, folks who uh, I deem to be responsible for driving leads, sales uh, folks who I deem to be responsible to convert those leads, and customer success. Uh, people who make sure we didn't lie in our sales and marketing process <laughs> and product like empowers that whole process. 
And so we've put um, uh, a lot of our marketing team in Chile, um, but then now we're also building kind of our marketing automation side out in Chile as well. So we both now have engineering talent in Chile as well as um, our marketing team and customer success. And what are what are some of the advantages of of doing that? Why why Chile or why anywhere in Latin America instead of just opening up a bigger office in Houston or being in San Francisco or somewhere else? Yeah. So so I think I think one of the first things that um, I was so surprised uh, about was that. As I've interacted with people in general who haven't been today or haven't spent much time in Latin America, they have the complete wrong mental model of what Santiago is like or what Chile is like. It's like way more akin to New York. I would say it's like an even more metropolitan city than than Houston is in many ways. Um, and you know, I think when I talk about Latin America or South America, it's like I'm in a jungle somewhere or like. And like a, you know, run down the huts and like they wonder if I have internet and and, and uh, you know I think that that kind of ignorance has tucked a lot of people out and so what that's done is that there are these long running kind of monopolies in TNA or in, in general that don't necessarily always treat their employees in a way that are is competitive to what you can offer as a startup right so you can find these just really 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 talented people who are in the country who are, like, from a cost perspective, that to find someone similar in the U.S. is, is like, is just a completely different order of magnitude. Um, and, and they're super excited for the work experience that we provide. Um, and so we, like, we and a handful of other companies, I think, have access to the talent pool that at this point just feels, like, almost endless, um, that... That is just really, really high quality, and um, and just is looking for the kind of experience we provide. And I think when we looked at Chile versus like Houston or versus you know versus San Francisco, I think we saw this opportunity for kind of like you know arbitrage, right? Where we could find really great people in a market like Santiago. Um, and live in a place like Houston, which is also a place that the cost of living is just like a fundamentally different different way um, than what the Valley is or what New York is. Um, and and kind of our theory has been like geography agnostic, right? So so that really great companies um, can be built from anywhere. And you know we've kind of gone for the sub model, but you know we see this we see that Latin America. And Chile, in particular, as one of the most stable countries in Latin America, draws a lot of other talent. So there are Venezuelans in Chile. There are Argent, you know, Argentinians in Chile. There are lots of people who are coming to Chile for opportunity, um, and that talent is really amazing. Uh, and so we feel like Chile is actually this really cool market where you kind of get the tapas of all South America um, and Latin America that are coming there because. The economy is doing pretty well, and it's way more stable than lots of other markets. Uh, and so, you can hire from the world um, in Chile. When it's not just it's not just other Latin American American countries, right? I mean, on your team, you've got people from 
um, native yeah, from English Australia, English. from mm-hmm. U.S. from yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's interesting because Chile just put their new tech visa out there, which. If you either want to start a tech company or work for a tech company, you can get a visa in the fast lane in about 15 days. So it's basically throwing the doors open to anyone with skills that wants to work in tech. And um, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've gotten emails probably weekly now from really quality people from the States, from the UK, and from New Zealand, and and also from India. asking to work in in tech companies in Chile because they know they can get the visa and they see that there's interesting companies um, like Ruprace and others in in Chile that are doing interesting things and I think that's just a huge huge advantage because I mean the US says there's really a lot of talented people it's amazing but at the same time if you can really find the best person in the world and have them be willing to come to Chile um, you can do that. You can recruit from everywhere rather than just in the States. You don't have to worry about the visas like you do in the U.S. Well, and that's the other amazing part um, is that we had someone working uh, in our Houston office and they, like, went down and moved to our Chile office and it was, like, probably one of the best things in their life. Like, when I started to see that we could, it helped us recruit talent in the U.S. to have a Chilean office, which is, like, everyone in the U.S who works for Ruperay's, like, eventually thinks, oh, I could take a trip to Chile. And many people are now starting to do that. And just the kind of, like, opportunity to work at a fast-growing startup and travel internationally is just, like, this, like, kind of killer stack on top that has actually helped us recruit in the U.S. And we feel like we have this amazing access to global talent in Chile that no one's really, like, that we can kind of be a hungry, hungry hippo in right now, yep. right, and just yep. find the, the best people there. Yep, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, we had, a, in, in one of our other companies, we had a developer from the U.S. who had been working at a top U.S. startup who wanted some flexibility to be able to explore Latin America, uh, live in a, in a Latin American country for, call it like eight months a year, and then work in the States for, for the rest. And he's going to join a company that's in Colombia and um, spend some time in their Colombia office, in their Chile office, and then some in their, in, in the States. And I think that it, it, like you said, it really is an advantage for um, younger people, especially that are, you know, they've been stuck sort of in their same jobs in the States and the ability to go work for a company that's clearly doing well um, in a Latin American country with a soft landing and just get right in there and get to work, I think it's it's clearly uh, a recruiting advantage. Yeah, we've seen it be like, uh, I recently had a, an employee say like, he loved the company so much, like he was willing to die for it. I was like, wow, like what are we, you know, like I really love group raise, but someone like, someone, and he was like, he essentially told that story to someone else who were trying to recruit. And he was like, yeah. Like, I really wanted to work here because my friend just said, like, he would die for this company. And I was just like, this is crazy, you know? And so, I, I, and I think uh, I think having that kind of multidimensional experience with lots of you as the culture we've been able to create, um, that's so powerful. So, we've talked, we've sung the praises of having remote team um, in in a second office like Chile. What are some of the disadvantages? What are things that don't work as well 
as just having everyone on the same place as in Houston? Well, I think there are some unique challenges that um, that you have to work out, and uh, I think those challenges change in the phase of the company. So, you know, um, you know, kind of as you're hitting expansion, there are different challenges to it versus when you're kind of in that, you know, in, in early stages. I think, I think one of the big challenges that you have to really, really focus on is communication, and um, I would say so having been remote uh, in Germany and in Hawaii and in Korea and in Chile, I think one of the things that um, is a really big challenge when you're like, we were in Berlin, for example, which is dealing with the, with dealing with the time difference, like Mm -hmm. time difference of customers, like doing customer service, time difference of marketing, kind of how that rolls. Um, Actually, one of the reasons I think why Chile made more sense than some of those other markets in terms of immediately for a team um, was that it's pretty similar time zone. Um, so that could be one of the big challenges, and we've experienced those challenges. I experienced that a lot. Those of in Hawaii, like, you know, I was definitely doing 3 a.m. phone calls, right, and then doing, you know, um, in Berlin, it's kind of a different kind of structure. You're in work before everyone comes, but you end up working until, you know, 2, 3 a.m., um, just to like, you know, deal with the marketing of that day and then kind of restart, restart the next day. So kind of managing, managing time zones, I think is a challenge. Um, also like internal team communication, right? Like the tools, I think now, uh, like with tools like Slack tool, you know, like the G suite, um, we live in a time where you actually truly can do full digital collaboration and that works. But there's still challenges. Like Google Hangouts sucks. Like right, like right now we need to get a new conferencing solution because uh, when we have like six or more people on a call, you know, for some reason there's just like always some issue, right? And um, so I think, I think, um, you know, those kind of text, those kind of tech things as they roll week over week are really, really important to solve. Um, and I think there's kind of a work style that you have to build. And, and, you know, I think that there's been challenges. You know, there's definitely been challenges to that. But at the at the same time, it's this unique time where you can do it. And so uh, you just kind of have to, you know, be creative about what or how you institute things internally that help you have consistent check-ins, consistent watches. And I think that in one sense, it's made it's made me personally be able to work on the business versus in the business all the time and see it like from an outside perspective, um, which has been really, really valuable. And then kind of, we're not fully distributed, meaning like, you know, we have two hubs. So, um, so it's not like you don't have an office experience or you don't have an experience where you're working side by side with team members ever. Um, so we're remote, but with two, two main hubs. And I think that's also kind of uh, taking some of the best from both worlds. Um, but but lots of lots of challenges to manage in, in that decision set. And what do you have any specific tips for or software that you use or you know strategies in the company that you use, like specific meeting times or anything like that that you can share with uh, that that help you run it better with having two offices? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so we've got the company kind of set up in, in these different areas. Uh, so we have, 
we have a weekly Tuesday meeting that, um, so everything in the company runs on at the weekly level. So we typically do 16-week sprints to target. So the last 16 weeks that we did before was to get to 5,000 restaurants. Uh, we started at right around 2,000 restaurants um, and pretty much doubled the company in 100 days. Um, and the way we did that was really through kind of setting what the target for the week was, understanding what the inputs needed to be, um, uh, well, and we're a three-city hub because we, we definitely are the Philippines is this whole other huge thing that we're super excited about and work with us. There are 33 of our people there. Um, but yeah, we're going to jump um, into more Phil- Philippines questions in a minute here. <laughs> yeah, the, the amazingness. Uh, and, and so that, that like weekly, that weekly Tuesday meeting, that's like very much looking at each area of the business and what metrics should be, what was the targeted metrics um, were that for the business in that area, and then what actually happened, um, and then like what are the challenges and kind of coming up, uh, I think provides a consistent cadence where everyone, um, when it's working well, when we're in the full cycle going, knows exactly, knows exactly what we're doing and if we're, if we're healthy or we're behind or we're ahead. Um, and I think, I think this is one of the big things I learned from Techstars was that if you think about growth, every week, right? You think about growth 52 times a year versus 12, you just do a lot more of it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so, you know, I think being remote kind of forces us to really, really be better at communication and um, and at, time, at times, um, you know, we went at that at times we need to improve, but when we're like, a, you know, the engine is fully running, um, really kind of doing 16-week sprints with really, really clear targets of how we're moving has been, it's been really successful for us. And So one of the questions that I get from other startups and sometimes from other investors in the States about um, having an office in Chile that maybe does sales is, like, how do you actually do it? Um, most people think, you know, you need to be close to your customers to, to make sales. How do you guys... How, how did you double the company in 100 days with having your office and a lot of that coming out of Chile? Yeah, so I think, I think um, in the, especially in the restaurant industry, um, we found that even if we, so if we were working with a big chain, for example, chains are distributed across, like, you know, like an outback. There you have 800 locations or, you know, just over 1,000 locations that are, distributed all across the country. And so they have adapted into digital meetings, right? Like they don't do these kind of large in-person meetings all the time, or at least the first steps of the meeting process, even internally, are digital. So again, it's just all about time zone. So we found that to be, we found that to be the case. And we've re, I think, you know, if I had like one superpower, it's probably copywriting. Um, and so a lot of what we've done is, doing direct marketing via copywriting um, that's all around the model of like contextualization and data. And uh, that's largely fueled by our Philippines team. And so figuring out how to scalably be local um, and to collect the data and understand like how to create that local crafting um, is something that I think because we, we like had some distance forced us to kind of like build this freakish strength. Um, that has allowed us to then now have this muscle where 
we can really, really attack the market digitally, whereas a lot of people assumed that you need boots on the ground, which actually slowed them down or like didn't make them privy to a whole set of strategies that work really well. And as a consequence, because there's not many people who are set up like this, you typically are, you know, almost the only one who's playing the game like this. And and also, you you guys have um, basically really really good English speakers or native English speakers on the team in in Latin America that can answer a call to a, uh, an IP phone. Right? Nobody needs to know where you are. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, so so you know, and and we do tons of support via email, right? And like never, like I think one of the biggest things that we did and uh, and. Um, our head of customer success uh, is like amazing, and she just like had this vision and passion for for our community, and did so 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 much. Uh, her name's Ellie, and we like just love her. Um, and so she she kind of she uh, was from the U.S., came to Chile, um, kind of in pursuit of of life and romance and all kinds of awesome things. And so we had this opportunity to work with her and she really streamlined just like these very, very high quality answers to questions that our users had. Um, and then we were able to, we were able to like build a lot of wikis. So we're really into like making sales wikis, making customer support wikis, like looking for issues and systemizing them. So that then even if you're not a really great English speaker, all you need to do is be able to identify the problem that's being talked about and have access to really great pre-written content to respond. And so we started with her kind of building out really great responses, and then we scaled that with by like by building wikis that you know you can kind of hotkey look up um, entirely written sentences. So we took the need for your English to be super great down, um, and just for you to have reading skills. That's super interesting. That's like. I think a lot of a lot of companies don't go that in depth, and that can be a huge advantage for you. Yeah, I mean, and even and, and the thing we found was that even if you do speak English really well, it's actually way better to have continuity among your responses, and then you can start to see like data around, like is the way we're dealing with event cancellations the right way? Is the you know are these different things there? And again, I think it's one of those examples where. You end up having to like develop this, this muscle um, because you're you know you're in that market situation, but in the end that ends up being way more scalable and way more healthy. So let's jump in. Let's jump into the Philippines. So you have 33 people there. How did that happen? Tell me. Tell me about that. Well, it all starts with a lovely lady named Michelle. So uh, we were in Berlin at the time, and it was, I think we were, we were five people uh, in Berlin. And Sean, you know, Sean, Sean is like, so Sean leads the marketing. Uh, he's our CMO and just a brilliant guy. Um, and he's like, he was, he was ready for an army, right? Like he's, he's an executive and like, he's great at running a team and he, he really leads a lot of our office in Santiago and, um, he just really wanted someone to collaborate with and a lot of research work that he was doing. And, you know, he was like, Hey, I think I just, I just want someone to like kind of collaborate with. And so he went at the time we were, you know, still we're 
super scrappy, um, and definitely scrappy. So we wanted to find an employee, and we wanted to find an employee for him where we weren't making this like kind of full time hire that was more just like this opportunity for him to, to manage and, and do some, some of this research. And so the job for the research was finding emails. And um, we made this job posting on a site called jobs.ph. And we got, I don't know, something crazy, like 300, 200 um, applicants and didn't know how to choose. And then one applicant just found, like went and searched and found Sean's email on the interwebs somewhere and sent her her resume, and, and the whole job was to find emails. And we are like, well, this is really simple. Why don't we start with her? Um, and so we started with her, and she had some marketing background. I mean, I kind of worked with teams in the past. And, um, and really quickly, we were just super impressed by her. She's just kind of this, like, tenacious woman who, who got just excellent at her job. And so we started with, with her, and we kind of saw that she had skills to manage. And then um, we worked with her probably for maybe three months, really teaching her the whole process of kind of collecting the contact information and how to do it. And then we started to see that this was, like, super scalable, that, like, the work she was doing was just, was just really, really driving our restaurant sales. Um, and so we thought, like, how do we get more of this data? How do we do this? And so we hired a second person. Um, and we had two people for a while, and then we went from probably two to six. Um, and actually, uh, the the in Chile, we hired um, um, uh, an Argentinian uh, girl named um, Tammy, who's just like this awesome marketing person we have on the team. And she really started to like take over what was happening in the Philippines, and she like drove the team from like six people to this like 30 person team. I think we went from six to 12 and then we got two managers and then went from like 12 to like maybe 25. And then we've recently gone to 33 people there. Um, and like built and again, because it's kind of like the, the U S like with Chile and then Chile is managing the Philippines, which I think is pretty crazy. Um, but then that team um, because of the type of data we're collecting and because of the communication and like we created a pretty complex training system and like system to verify talent. And um, so our strategy has always been, you know, to have work that we've already done in the past. And then the first, you know, the first couple of days of, of a new hire is them doing work that we've already done as a test project and seeing how that goes and then kind of rolling into moving that to like 80% new work and 20% um, work that we've already done and seeing how they do, and then kind of moving them to fully doing their own work with random spot checks. And so we built this like very, very, very robust system to hire people in the Philippines and like have found really great managers and really great talent there. Um, and now those teams are just like on the move and, it's pretty crazy to have uh, a team of 33 in the Philippines that are, that are, yeah, every day going hard on the data side of what we do. And do they do they still do the original task of finding emails, or have you added more things? Yeah, so they find uh, so they find emails, but in addition to finding emails, we we use a lot of metadata around to contextualize our messaging to you know to to make it feel local. So. Our, you know, my whole mantra, uh, I think that 
is names, 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 right? So the the book Made to Stick, I don't know if you've read the book Made to Stick, it like really affected me. Um, there's an illustration of this guy who he runs a newspaper and he's a local newspaper. He's trying to think how he's going to compete against the New York Times. And um, the New York Times has more writers, you know, has more access to content, has all this kind of thing. Um, but what he realizes is the New York Times will almost never have anyone in his town show up, and definitely not every week. And what he can do is he can fill his newspaper with the names of the people in his town. And so he communicates to his staff, like, names, names, names. Like, we will break the typeface if we can get more names. Because if you see your neighbor in the paper, your kid in the paper, your name in the paper, like, that just drives you to always be curious about what's happening, to always do that. And so we saw that same ability. My whole perspective is that anytime, like, you know, people talk about, oh, I like custom field, I added someone's name in. Well, that's not enough. It's got to feel, someone has to recognize the names that you include in your email. You have to think through your email or any kind of messaging, think through how to contextualize where someone personally sees it. If you send this email to anyone else, or this communication to anyone else, it would just be a random name. But if you sent it, it's like the street of the street that you grew up on, right? Pater Street for me, right? Like if I see Pater, like it means something to me. But if anyone else looks at it, it doesn't mean anything. And so kind of systematically thinking through how you find that kind of metadata um, in addition to just the contact information, that's what really drove up our conversion rate 10x, right? 100x over, actually literally 10x over what it was. And really, really, um, like, was just a totally different ballpark in terms of, of converting um, across the country, uh, across the U.S., by, by collecting that additional metadata. So in addition to the contact information, they're collecting that. So that could be school start date, that could be, you know, charity that you recently supported. That could be, there's all these kinds of sets of metadata that they collect in addition um, to contact information. Uh, I definitely have read Made to Stick. That was, uh, I tell that same story not nearly as well as you to many, lots of our different entrepreneurs that I meet because I think it's it's super powerful. It's, um, you know, the, I'm going to butcher the quote again, but it's, forget, and I forget who said it, but it's like there's nothing, I think it was, it was in, um, what is it in? How to Win Friends and Influence People, where, yeah. where nothing is sweet as, there's no, no word sweeter than your name, something like that. And it, it's true. I mean, it, he talks about if you are just walking down the street and somebody says your name, even if it's not to you, you're going to pick it out from the crowd. And it's totally right. And I think you've done an amazing job of taking that to to the fullest and definitely have to give a shout out to my mom here because she gave me that book I think for my birthday uh, back when I had just started my first business and it's something that I still talk about probably weekly with uh, with teams that I work with aren't moms awesome they are indeed um, so if you had if you had to give a couple pieces of advice to somebody who says, yeah, you know what, this Philippines thing sounds awesome. What should they do? What should their first couple steps be? Or biggest tips that you have? Well, I mean, so, and, and like many things in life, I think our, our kind of starter, starter yeast was Providence, right? Uh, finding a Michelle 
and that she had not only the data skills, but the people management skills to like, you know, build and run that you know, that size in many sense in many senses was yeah, Providence. Like I we're definitely grateful for that. Um, but from like a systematic framework perspective, I think it does start with one person, right? It starts with um, can you get your processes where they're clearly communicated so that truly anyone can do them? And I will push you to think through the level of communication you can have. So meaning like instead of saying like I need you to research school start dates, better thing to do is to create a spreadsheet that has the exact Google search that you would expect someone to perform that can copy and paste into Google and tells them how many listings they should open in browser tabs and where on pages they would likely see this and has, you know, four or five examples of the successful collect of that data. And then you look at the results, you do a small project, get feedback, and then, you know, anything you can add by way of screencast or, or, um, or uh, just like screenshots through the process is going to just improve accuracy. I think what I've seen people really try to do, um, do kind of like, do research work with the Philippines or other places, they really, really underestimate the amount of specificity that is required to get the, to get the output that they're expecting. And I think you have to go in kind of um, with like zero ambiguity. So anytime that you're doing anything other than click, like if there's someone you're expecting anyone to type anything, any word that needs to be typed, that should really be, something that you like generate for them and they just copy and paste and select um, at least have it at that level. And then they will get better at their job, like, and give you feedback. But, but, but I would say just be really, really prepared for that kind of level of communication. Um, we also, also like the very, like, if you're thinking about you know, doing a product like that, again, it starts with one person, making one hire. And then it also starts with you doing the work first. So, you know, if like if you can do the first hundred hours of the work that you're expecting someone to research, you'll learn a ton of tips. You'll learn kind of that process to be able to communicate that. And then, you know, when you're going through the process, ideally, you can hire a couple of people to do the data collect for you, and then you can see where their mind rate is or how much data they collect versus what you got. That's another big pitfall I see is where people are too lazy to do the work. Not even too lazy, they just haven't thought about doing the work themselves first. So then they don't really know what the possibility is or they don't have a high conviction. I think that that's a mistake. So um, really, really tactically doing the work yourself, kind of putting like the time it takes you to do it, putting the mind rate you get. So meaning like, you know, how many records, how many like individual sites someone go through and what when were they actually successful in collecting the data or the contact information they wanted. And you might not be able to find speakers exactly as well as you, but you should, you will find out if they give you fake data or off data or, or like what that is and then help you kind of make those selections very systematically. That's, that's really, really good tips. I think, you know, I, I like to think about it in if, the same way as you in that if I'm going to assign a task to someone, I should have at least tried to do it myself and figured out some of the tips so I can train the person. And then ideally, if you have the time, 
figure out how to give instructions specifically enough and in a way that, you know, I think it was from one of the Tim Ferriss podcasts, he talks about teaching as if it's the last time you could ever teach it again. So that, uh, one, you get better instructions, and two, if you do have to change people or someone does leave, you don't have to redo everything from scratch. I think that's a good tip. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Um, and that's how we scaled. So we started with the original kind of set of research, and then we got benchmark data from from kind of working with our first hire, and then we created that test project for any hire. So we started to know the quality of anyone who came through based on, like, and I think that's one of the things is it takes time, but then when, when you get to full scale, like 33 at 33 people, you can't really even imagine the amount of data that comes out of that. Um, at one, it's like not crazy amounts. So, but if you get these systems in place, you can scale up to 33. So really having a really great test project where you know what the mine rate should be and, you know, have the first couple of days, three days worth of work where you completely already know how someone should perform on that. And so when, when you make that next hire, it's not like, is this a good person, bad person? You have really clear data and you can share with them, you know, in the end, like, yeah, we're going to go with you. We think that works really well. Or, hey, actually, you know, the data sets you provide weren't there. And maybe you give them, you know, we, we did three phases. So we had phase one where you had to meet certain benchmarks. Phase two where, you know, again, we started to actually let you collect new information but still put put in about 20% pre-known records, and then phase three where we like fully made the hire, um, and then still spot, spot check on records that we have um, to make sure the quality's there. And I think, I think if you get if you get really good about that process, you can very quickly scale the team up um, with a lot of confidence in the quality of the work you're getting. How far do you think you could scale from your 33 today without it breaking, uh, without having to do a lot of new stuff. How many more people do you think you can add? Well, I think it broke right around 12 people. That was where, that was a breaking point. And then we, when we had to hire that second manager, so when we needed, um, um, like, we knew we needed that second manager, kind of figuring out how do we promote someone into being a manager, like, what are, what are the managed, like, what's the manager role versus that, that was like that moment. And then, really since we broke it and then kind of re like very systemized the management in the Philippines. Now, I mean, I feel pretty confident um, that we, I mean, 50s, 50s almost here. And um, I think a hundred in terms of the current management structure um, is, is probably, probably the next breaking point. Um, but, but, yeah, taking that team to 100, which is, sounds crazy. Like, it would have sounded crazy, but now it seems like, um, seems like you know, we've done two managers, so that, so that next third manager probably going at, at a 50 team, making sure that that doesn't break. Um, and if that doesn't break, um, I see getting to 100 pretty much on that, same, on that same roadmap. And then I think probably post-100, there's probably a different strategy we need to take. Because the Philippines has like brown nuts, for example, right? So that means like, you know, I, we, we're right now thinking about sending generators down to the Philippines to help pad out brownouts, right? So like literally the Filipino power grid is a success factor in group rates, which is pretty hilarious. 
Um, so yeah, I bet you never thought that about, when you were starting the company. Gosh, no, not not ever, right? So I'm like, do I have, like, do I need to be involved politically in the Philippines, like, or advocate for, you know, like people like islands to make sure that they have power, and like you start to think about all these kind of interesting that side of it. Like when you have a hundred people working or in a place, you you care a lot more about the platform itself. Um, so. You know, I think I think those kind of issues start to magnify uh, as you get more and more. So, you know, now I think it's another strategy. You know, we're kind of in that level of problem, like problem solving. But, um, but I think the cult, like the culture there, is really great. Um, and I give so much credit to my team, right? That um, um, in like you know, really solving a lot of these like hard management problems that have that have rolled really well. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here and jump to your recent fundraise. So you had 30 people in the Philippines, seven in Chile. You had another couple in the States. You had four, co- four co-founders from three different countries. And how many, how many different nationalities for employees? We had like seven or eight uh, the think, last I time we talked. We were at like eight or nine, like yeah. that now. Yeah. How how did investors react um, when you first went and started talking with top U.S. VCs to the structure and to the business? Well, I mean, I think the other thing to include that, like, unfor- unfortunately, not unfortunately, I don't know, is that I'm also a black CEO, which is so like literally nothing about us fits the model, like like <laughs> like like nothing, right? Like. Like, um, you know, my name is Devin, my co-founder, like people like Devin and Kevin, um, you know, there's Paul and Sean as well, but you know, we kind of do the Devin and Kevin thing and, and, um, and Kevin's from Guatemala originally. Um, uh, Paul, I grew up with Paul, uh, and, uh, uh, he, he, like, he's, you know, he's awesome. He also speaks Japanese, uh, Kevin speaks Spanish. I spoke Chinese and Sean's from Korea and, um, speaks Korean in addition to many other languages. So, so we like we were just yeah just like there's like I started to realize there were no companies that really looked like us right um, and especially in the valley like we you know if we were going to be different right like just being like how being black wasn't enough right I needed to have like three teams across the world and an office in Chile and headquarters in Houston and you know and like this just like thing that just like doesn't fit any pattern. Um, but I think it's almost so far off pattern that it's just like intriguing. Like it's like, what is this? Like, you know, like I've never seen that kind of duck before. Um, and I think when we went to, um, in the process, we got to meet some really, uh, high quality VCs. Um, uh, many of which I still have a relationship with. Um, and I think, so I always start my, I guess the best way to t- tackle this. So I always start my story with my mother. Okay. So my mother, uh, grew up in Louisiana. Um, and, uh, during the time of integration, she was the first black woman to integrate, uh, in her high school and her, in her city. And I'm all fairly light skinned. And so, uh, no one realized the, I guess the clan didn't realize that she had integrated until a couple of weeks later and 
she got what I call the original late gram, which was they came to her house and burned a cross in the front yard when they realized that she was black and she was at school. Wow. And, what, uh, what, what year would that have been, more or less? Uh, I would have been in the 60s. Um, and, uh, and so she and, and my grandmother was the first black woman to vote. She passed uh, voter test and successfully voted. And so, and so when uh, my, my mom and dad, they moved from Louisiana to Houston, my dad had a job with, with digital, which is like kind of a compact computer. Um, and, and so I grew up in a mainly black neighborhood in Houston, but I went to school and kind of lived in this area called Sugarland, uh, which is now actually the most diverse county in the country. Um, and, and so I saw these two worlds. Um, you know, I think in Sugarland there were like kids from more than a hundred different first generation kids from uh, more than a hundred different countries that are, that are there. And I, so I grew up in this like one sense, super diverse environment and this other sense, very like monoculture. And it made me aware of, of culture. It made me aware of difference. Um, and I started to look for, uh, I started to look for opportunities for those worlds to intersect and, and to make sense of life. And that's really, when I looked on it, like, that's why I became a marketplace entrepreneur. And, um, and so because of this marketplace that brings people together, um, but that, that's like who I am, that's my identity. And so, uh, I think going kind of back to the raise, like, uh, in this race, I was actually super open about that story, about, like, why, why like, I started to see the world the way I see the world. Um, and, uh, and I think, I think the, the, I, again, I think the venture community had never, like, necessarily interacted with that story, um, but still interacted with it really, really positively in the beginning really positively, but then at the same time, just didn't understand lots of aspects. Like, uh, I think in the Valley, I, my impression was that VCs had looked at Latin America, um, thought it was, you know, maybe not developed and was just out of the thesis. Um, but in the actual fundraise itself, I started to realize that people just actually like were completely ignorant of what's happening. And it was just like a blind spot. Um, the, the kind of assumption set, and I think I mentioned it earlier was that, you know, that it was like, I got like, is there internet there? Like, is there like infrastructure? Like, how would you hire? Like, are, is there talent? Um, all these questions that like, if you spend any time are like instantly answered the second you hop off the plane almost, um, but we're just like completely veiled. Um, and so, so I had this like kind of interesting experience where, uh, where, I was actually getting really far in this kind of process, but then kind of ex- like realizing that this model was like global movement is, is a blind spot to, I think a lot of people in the Valley and a lot of people in New York and a lot of, like a lot of people in the U S like, and uh, just don't understand actually how far along the entrepreneurial communities are in these kind of cities that are not the Valley. Um, and so, and so got to see a lot of like, realization of 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 that process I, I think i thought it was way more kind of purposeful but i saw that it was just more kind of this we have a lot of deal flow of people from around here so we just don't really look beyond that and i think um made me realize that I, yeah that there's this huge opportunity and i, I think that that uh that 
you know, just kind of like we see disruption in technology. I think the valley and and um, is is actually ripe to be disrupted um, by kind of the collective global rise of entrepreneurship. I think I think you know we had experience with some of our other portfolio companies, and then working with you to help you uh, close your round, talking with different just entrepreneurs, investors, and just normal people um, in the states not involved in tech. And it, it really is, from what I've seen, it, it's not anything like, oh, we're going to screw these people that are not from the Valley. It's nothing like that. It's actually just exactly what you said. It's just there's no no interaction and so no, no real understanding. Um, you know, there's not much understanding that, you know, Chile and Argentina share an, a border and Argentina has amazing food and um, speaks Spanish in a different way from Chile and has an economy that hasn't really worked for the last, call it, 15, 20 years. Whereas Chile is an incredibly stable economy um, with a completely different type of Spanish and um, has a completely different type of food. And, you know, people will often remark, you know, Chile and Argentina, well, there's not it's not like Mexican food. It's, and that that's, you might laugh at that, but it's its just like most people in their day-to-day don't really have a way to know that, you know? Um, so I think there's just a lot of misconceptions or not even, haven't even thought about it, along with the fact that there's amazing deal flow in Silicon Valley and New York, where if it doesn't really fit the pattern or it might be more difficult to manage, it's just kind of get skipped and you know that's as you well know that's our entire investment thesis with uh, with magma um, of investing in the best companies that are doing business in the states but happen to have happen to maybe look a little bit weird to a US audience because they have great Latin American talent Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I echo all of that, especially the Mexican food being, like, super foreign food in Chile. Like, you go to a Mexican restaurant, it's like, you know, they're like, oh, that, 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 those funny northerners, right? If we have any Mexicans listening, you know, that's a huge business opportunity if uh, someone wants to go oh, start right. a high-quality Mexican food restaurant. Concept of Chile. Someone do it. Someone Please do, do it. it. Listen, You'll make, do it. You'll make all of our lives better. Yeah, yeah, like you know, and you should put it in Providencia, and you should put, <laughs> like, like you should put it in your office, and we will be there. Yep, yep. So, what other what other things did you? What was the most surprising interaction, or uh, yeah, what was the most surprising interaction that you had with a U.S. investor in relation to the the Chile and Filipino? Um, offices. Do you have anyone that told you, you know what, you know, maybe I'll give you money, or I'd be very interested in giving you money if you shut that down and move to the states, something like that? Yeah. So you know, interestingly enough, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, we had some partners that we interacted with at firms who were like, just, just like, just didn't get it, right? I think, um, I think, especially like when when costs or kind of not a consideration or, or like, you know, having a low cost center, like doesn't make any sense to, to someone, um, you know, like we'll, we'll just give you enough money so that you don't need a low cost center. 
Uh, but then kind of like not realizing the, the full package of the experience. Um, I think, again, it goes back to just like matching patterns, right? Um, something ridiculous like, I don't know, a very small hand firm, handful of firms in the Valley have created most of the returns. Um, and so it's like a, you know, kind of like pattern match city where everyone's trying to look for what those firms have invested in and how they did that and like, you know, just match those patterns. And so I think, you know, but I think kind of that creates a bias, right? That doesn't, hasn't, hasn't taken into consideration like that all of the world can now move on technology and kind of see that. And so, yeah, in, in our experience with a couple of VCs, we, there was like a huge, like, especially me living in Chile, they were like, I don't know if we can give you a couple million dollars and like, have you live not in the U.S.? Like, what if you just run away? Like, literally someone said that. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, what if I, like, like, uh, like I'm not running away. Um, uh, but that was just like, it's just like a model, right? Like it's just like a thing. And then, um, I'll actually credit, I'll credit, um, um, Javelin Ventures, which I walked in and they had made one of their, one of their best investments is in a company called Thumbtack and, um, really like those guys, uh, uh, hope to, hope to work with them one day. Um, and they were like, Oh, you have a team in the, you have a team in the Philippines. Like that sounds great. Thumbtack, I think has 700 people in the Philippines. So it was like one of the first, I uh, walked in and had this kind of like multi-office situation. And like, ah, we do have a pattern for that. And that's great. Um, and so, and so, you know, for the most part, but that was the kind of the contrarian experience for the most part, it was just like a very kind of people were definitely open, but like, again, never seen that pattern. Yeah, but I think it's super interesting because in talking with a lot of very seasoned investors in, in the Valley in New York, they do have a pattern for like a company that's got an office in Silicon Valley, but their dev is in India or their dev is in Eastern Europe or in China, um, but they don't for Latin America. And mm. so that's, that's one of those things where if, I bet – you would have had in Latin American companies or companies that do business in the States but have a tech office in Latin America, if they just swapped out Latin America for, um, you know, Eastern Europe or India, I bet that they would have a lot easier time at least to start because there is a huge pattern of companies that have done really well in the Valley and in New York that aren't necessarily just in they do have a sales office or um, maybe a management office in one of the bigger cities, but they might have tech in, like I said, Eastern Europe or India or even like in Madison, Wisconsin or in Austin or in Boulder um, where or Houston, but with an office in one of the bigger bigger tech centers. So I think they're just... Well, I also in- think, ironically, Houston is this challenge, right? Where yeah. like people... Yeah, definitely in this in this so so like when you I guess it's like one of those experiences where you grow up and you're like kind of in this place and then you kind of you know, go into tech or you go into an industry there and then you kind of realize that that actually like no one knows anybody who like ran a great tech company in Houston, right? And my whole my whole like existence in reality and I I, I, I only recently probably got this from my mother who like didn't need to see anyone who looked like her 
do anything to do something. I definitely don't need to see anyone who looks like me to like give me permission to do it. Um, but yeah, so like, so I think that the Houston scene that was like for a non oil, non medical startup to come out of Houston. Um, you know, I think now there's actually like, we were kind of one of the pioneers of a growing restaurant tech scene that's happening in Houston, uh, because people are starting to realize that actually Houston is a really great place for restaurant tech, but, but, um, is, but it, uh, is of, it the founder of, uh, of, of WordPress? Isn't he in Houston or from Houston or both? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure actually, but, 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 but lots of like, actually in reality, there's a lot of things that have like sourced out of Houston. Um, that people like just kind of don't know or they just don't have a model for it. And again, Houston is one of those cities that kind of has this bottle where people think like it's this like southern city that's that's uh, you know super segregated or something. And like in reality, it's just past New York as the most diversity in the in the country. So it's um, it's another one of those kind of reality distortion fields where people don't really know what it's like and 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 have that. And so I struggled with. Even in the valley, people are like, so, like, why Houston? They're like, what? What is that? Like, is it very like backwards in Houston? And I just like, it was just like, oh man, like, like, I was just this realization that you know people just have a model. So I think, I think, um, I think, and and that I see it as an opportunity, right, to kind of like educate people and um, and let them know that that um, yeah, that there's this there's this new rise. So you you were able to close a nice sized round with uh, with us from Magma from TechStars, for Capital uh, and some previous investors. What advice would you give to other founders that maybe aren't in one of the tech hubs in the states, or more specifically, are in Latin America and but are doing business in the states and want to raise money in the states? Uh, since you've successfully done it and are one of probably the first few that have, have done a decent-sized round and done well. Um, what would you say to him? Um, well, I mean, well, like, even before I answer that, I want to say uh, we feel like very, very, very blessed and excited to work with you guys. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, really, really grateful uh, for the, like, I feel like we got amazing partners. Texas Ventures is like, they are prolific in many, many ways. Like David Cohen, like he, like he's a visionary and sees the future. Um, and it's super fun to work with them. And, and, and Jason Seitz, who's like the main partner in the deal, is a guy I look up to a lot. Um, and we just feel super excited about it. And then uh, Kapoor Capital, which, you know, we spent a lot of time in the Valley, and it was awesome to kind of connect with Oakland and have our social mission be reflected in our investment. Um, and so feel really, really grateful for that, for all of you guys. Um, so on the, the, well, the feeling is definitely mutual, at least on our end, it's always amazing to work with entrepreneurs like you and people like you and your team that are not only building a great business, but are fun to fun to be around and interesting to talk with and are also doing something that is actually good for, for the world rather than many of the, the tech businesses that are out there that either are debatably good or maybe not so good for for lots of people so uh, it's definitely mutual on our end yeah we're we're humbled and excited to to have really great partners so super super pumped there um and and 
in terms of advice, I would say like, I would say like, you know, um, the, I guess it's a Steve Martin quote, uh, which is like, be so good they can't deny you. Yeah. Um, and I think that applies, right? Like, so I think, I think one of the things, um, that, uh, that I guess he, he's a fallen hero now, but, but, but I, I still think there's a lot of wisdom, um, uh, from, uh, um, Parker from, from Zinefetz, who was kind of talking about his first company experience. Um, and he was essentially saying that, that, uh, he went to this meeting and he was really struggling to raise money for his first company. Um, and, uh, in one of his meetings, the VC told him, like, you know, if you're the Twitter guys, you can come in here and, like, go blah, 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 and, like, you know, I'm going to write you a check, right? Like, but if you're not the Twitter guys, like, you're going to have to have a really great plan. You're going to have to have this, like, really clear thing, and, like, you're going to have to be really, really, like, awesome what you do. And he said, like, his response was, um, like, you know, the, the VC was trying to tell him, like, you need to be, like, excellent to to do this, but he kind of like took the opposite lesson. He was like, how do I become like the Twitter guys? Um, and I think like when I heard that, I was, you know, kind of looking at it, I was like, man, it makes a lot of sense. Like in one sense, like the best thing to do, like if you're going to go off and you're going to make that raise successful, it's just like have freaking great numbers. Do you have any books that you would recommend for a founder to read if they're starting the fundraising process? Go ahead. Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, Venture Deals, which is a Brad Feld book, uh, was a really amazing resource, as well as Pitch Anything, was awesome. Um, another Techstars founder uh, kind of mentioned Pitch Anything to me, and I checked it out, and I thought it was really, really useful. And then, um, uh, like, you know, I read the book, I was reading the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things uh, by Ben Horowitz, and um in the in that book, it's an awesome. I don't know. I love that book. It's like an awesome kind of general hand guide, uh, um, field guide for lots of things. Um, and you know, kind of reading Ben's experience, his highs and his lows, uh, was like super comforting in the fundraise process for some reason. Just to kind of realize that like other people have these like massive, um, you know, kind of euphoric. Um, and then low points and like, and that, and that's a part of like the entrepreneurial experience. Um, and to kind of see that externally. And I like, I'll like, uh, we were meeting with, with, um, I'll, I'll leave it unnamed, a, a, a top tier VC. And, um, I remember the night before I was sent to meet with them, I woke up and I went to the bathroom and I threw up and I was like, in the book, like Ben is always throwing up. Like if there's like a problem, he throws up. Like he's just like constantly throwing up. Um, and I remember thinking like, oh, like, this is, is is this like the big time? Is this what this feels like? Um, and then like ten minutes later, I threw up again, and I realized that it wasn't the big time. It was like food poisoning. And and uh, and and the, the ultimately, yeah, like you know, you don't necessarily. It's not like you don't always have to constantly be throwing up to have a really intense entrepreneurial experience, but. Um, I was reading the hard things about hard things at the time, and it just made me, it made me kind of um, uh, realize um, that, that that that's a part of the experience, and and like and and that kind of ramp up and gear up is is uh, is okay, right? Like, is that you're going to go through these kinds of these kinds of moments, 
Uh, and in the book, in that book, he talks a lot about um, the difference between like investors or like outsiders do uh, like statistics, right? They look at the probability that you will be successful. And, you know, when you say number to them, they're kind of cutting that number by probability, right? Like that's how a lot of investors think. But like, it's your job to think about it like calculus. Like, you know, when you're plotting a rocket to go to the moon, like you don't care about the probabilities of these things. You just need to know the science. You should know the math. Um, and, and so I thought that was really true. Um, of just kind of not of like letting other people add probabilities to you. Don't put probabilities on yourself. Like you just, you just need to drive hard and get there. Um, and then I would add like this other aspect, which I found to be really true, which is providence, right? Which is, which all goes back to like, we didn't know that Michelle was going to be a great hire. Like I had never even thought of TLA as a place before. Like the Philippines, like wasn't even in the model. Like, you know, I only met my wife, um, uh, because I didn't have money and, you know, like, like wanted a bagel, but couldn't buy one. Like I could have missed all of that. Like I could have pretty much missed my whole life. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I think in large part to the, uh, to the grace of God. Right. So, so like, I think you can never, you can never count out that part of the equation because some of the biggest rocks come in, um, come in from that perspective as well. But just from a mentality point of view, calculus is a much stronger place to be as an entrepreneur than, than statistics. And I think, you know, you can't really look at what percentage of companies raise or like, you know, I looked at it after we did the raise and I realized that so it's like less than a half percent of companies success, like, you know, startups successfully raise. And then I was more curious about it because of uh, being a minority founder. And so it's less than 1% of minority deals um, of, of all the companies you raise are minority founders. So like it's not even 1%, it's less than 1%. So it's like 0. 0.0001, right? Um, but like that doesn't really matter at the end of the day, right? Like that's a probability. Like I'll let someone else assign that. Um, like we just kind of drove through it, right? Which I know now is super uncommon, um, but but... I, I, I don't really care about the probabilities. And did you have any specific, well, I mean, I already know the answer to this. You, you were pretty meticulous, not pretty meticulous, very meticulous on raising, figuring out who to talk to in your, in your fundraise, which I think something that a lot of founders, especially ones that haven't done it before or are outside of, of startup hubs, get wrong and don't take it seriously as, as they should. Can you talk a little bit about your process of before the raise, thinking about how much to raise and then actually going out and talking to, talking to investors? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So actually we got really intense about that side of things. And one of the, one of the big value I think was actually was our relationship with you in terms of getting um, connected to some of the best people. Um, and, and by best people, I like, there's a guy named Pierre Wolf who is like the road dog number one um, out there. So if Pierre, you're listening, uh, so much love to you. Um, and yeah, so Pierre's we got awesome. really, yeah, yeah. Pierre's like this, like, uh, Silicon Valley, like, you know, I don't, I don't even know like what the proper or superlative for, for Pierre, like he's a wolf. His last name's Wolf. He's like the Silicon Valley, like the wolf of Silicon Valley. 
um, who, but, but like without all the like cocaine and other assets, but, <laughs> but just an awesome, <laughs> awesome guy. Um, um, but, um, so we, so we like did a ton of research. So our, our whole strategy was a thesis based strategy, which, um, Yen Lipinski, who is the Texas MD in uh, Berlin for the Natural Hospitality Accelerator, um, who affected me as a mentor in a huge kind of way. Um, he really taught he really taught me about how to think about investor thesis. So, um, really figuring out like what is it that an investor like, thinks about the world and like, how the world will change. And really looking for like, what are your thesis? Like, what are the thesis that your business believes about how the world will be different? And then finding people who share that thesis. Um, and so we did a lot of research on looking for people who saw the local economy as important or saw, um, or saw the world via like diversity and perspective or saw the kind of structure of company that we had and kind of thought through all the vectors of of people who might see the world like the way we see it um, and who had that thesis. And then we looked for people who were generally geography agnostic or were willing to like take meetings and that set. Um, and then those became the folks that like really came in the funnel. And so I think, I think um, Crunchbase is amazing. Um, you know, PitchBook is awesome. There's so much resource. Like I'm always surprised when people, you know, people talk to me like, "Oh, so I know you spend a lot of time in the valley, and you spend time a lot of time in New York. Like, how do you get connected?" And I'm like, "Well, the first thing is that you need to like have something to aim at, um, um, you know, and and so you can get that by understanding like what the thesis of your business and who who really connects with that. Who's going to be super excited to talk to you about marketplace dynamics? Or who's going to be super excited to talk to you?" about, you know, the, the, the way the company is being built. Um, and I think that that kind of allows you versus saying, like, who should I connect with in the Valley, right? Um, the, the question is, is, like, here are the different things you believe about the future, who also believes that, and, like, how do I, how do I find them? And, uh, and for the most part now, like, I think sophisticated VCs are putting out their investment thesis or putting out particularly how they either believe in the contrarian or believe like what the future will look like. So if you're spending a lot of time kind of going through um, the crunch faces of the world looking for that, um, you can fairly quickly see on someone's site if they're if they do have that thesis and then, you know, kind of go through your network, see how you can get connected with them. And I think, you know, and I had this experience where um, you know, personal connections are best. Other entrepreneurs are like are Getting other entrepreneurs to introduce you is a really great way, um, you know, and and, if, and then entrepreneurs are tend tend to be willing to like talk to other companies who are really getting things done and are more than happy to help. So it's a, it's also a really great way to do that to get the intros, as well as like having like you made a bunch of venture introductions for us, like other investors who are kind of in the round. So, um, but I think when you get really targeted about who you want to work with and why, um, that whole that kind of that side of the equation gets easier um, versus saying like, I want to be connected in the valley. Like who do I talk to? I think, yeah, you can do a little bit of research before that to become more targeted. Yeah. I think, I think that's totally right. And the other interesting thing that I think you did that is super important for companies that are not in New York or, or San Francisco, whether they're in the States or not, 
um, is you actually went and spent a bunch of time in both New York and in the Valley during the time that you were doing your race so that you could have, you know, if someone introduced you to someone, you could do that meeting the next day or you could go do um, some of the events and you really sort of cut that time out and said, you know what, I'm going to spend this time close to where I'm trying to raise the money. And I think that was definitely a good strategy that, and I've seen other companies do that as well. Um, I forget the company, but as a, a Madison company told me that when they raised a round out of, um, out of the Valley, they basically for the three months before the, they were, they were closing their round, they would fly out, um, four days a week for, for two of the weeks of the month to basically make it seem like they were out there. Um, and it worked for them. They were able to close around. And, you know, I don't think that's, that's really yeah, feasible for somebody who's that. in Colombia or Mexico or, or, or Chile because of the distances, but you can take a two week period and, um, be there, or you can take a month period and be there when you're trying to raise the round. And, and, and I also think there's something to be said for the Valley, you know, which is, you know, the, the least contrarian thing I could say is that the Valley does have really great networks and the Valley does have like, there are a lot of really great companies being built there and having general connections to that community and having mentors in that space and having um, relationships with investors there. Uh, and just like just folks who have, have kind of iterations in that process, it's just super valuable, right? So, so even if um, you know we get in the closing funds out there, um, but but I think there's still lots to be gained um, in terms of not burying your head against what, what's happening in the valley, like knowing what's going on and building connections in there uh, is, is a really great asset, no matter what, right? That's that's a super important point that I think a lot of people, pretty much anywhere, not to, they could be in the valley as well, get get wrong, is they see different companies raising big amounts of money at high valuations, maybe with less product or less traction than they have, and they start to think, well, why why can't I do that? Why why do they get it and I don't? And they start to sort of get down on themselves about it, and one of the things that I think you did really well in your round was you knew what, how much you needed to raise and you knew who you wanted to work with and you went and met with them all and you didn't, you didn't really let other people raising money at other valuations or other amounts or other phases or the ease of doing it or the, how hard it was or whatever. You didn't let that affect you at all. You just had your goal and you just went and did it. And I think that that's something that a lot of a lot of founders, especially ones that are outside of New York and the Valley, get wrong. Um, they they benchmark to what's going on in the Valley, where they say, "Well, that guy just raised a half a million dollars on a napkin at a three or four million dollar valuation, or sometimes even more." That's crazy. I have more traction, and why can't I do that? And it's like it's the wrong mentality. Even if it is unfair, well, life is unfair, right? I mean, that's. One of those things that I think you did really well, where you didn't let any of that stuff affect you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's also one of the, to like, like, do you know what a Valley, you know, style round is in the Philippines? <laughs> it's insane, right? Like, yeah. like, like, 
You know what it is to spend, you know, a couple million dollars in the Philippines? Like a million dollars in the Philippines is like fifty million dollars, right? So, um, so like I feel like I like snuck out of there as like a bandit. <laughs> yeah. Like the greatest. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think I also think that if you it's one of the big benefits of like understanding of understanding who you like where you are. Yeah, I think exactly what you're talking about, right? Is 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 not just making decisions because other people are making those decisions. One of the one of the challenges of like kind of you know blazing a new trail is that there's not a lot of people who are doing exactly what you're doing. So finding comparables is challenging, which just means that you just have to think through like what makes sense. Um, but I think that that in that sense you get this huge kind of arbitrage opportunity um, that just other people don't see. So you know, in, in the challenge, there's also this kind of this massive benefit as well. And so as long as you're willing to kind of do the the hard work of being, you know, not necessarily like the pattern, right, you, you, you can kind of build a monopoly, which which uh, uh, I don't always agree with Peter Thiel, but when I do, I, I like monopolies. <laughs> Well, this is this has been great. I'm really happy that we were able to connect. We actually talked for a little over two hours here, which is a new record for my podcast here. And I'm looking forward to connecting in person for the first time in a while um, in the next couple of weeks here when we're both going to be in Chile. So I'm, uh, I think it's going to be fun. Well, thank you so much for for uh, for for having me. Um, like I said before, we're just super honored to work with you guys and uh, looking forward to seeing you in Chile. Yeah, well, we feel the same. You guys are blazing a trail from uh, Latin America to the Philippines to the States and building a really interesting business with a very unique team. And we're, we're very happy to be a part of it. So I will see we you in a couple of weeks. See you soon. All right. Thanks, Devin.